Okay, we're going to uh, move into our study now. Um, we're moving into a new book, but it really is a, a continuation in a sense, because we're just moving from Peter's first epistle now to this morning into Peter's second epistle. And um, I'm sure we're going to be blessed and encouraged. Uh, there's so much in this uh, chapter. We're not going to probably make the way, way through the whole chapter this morning. But uh, we'll make a start and we'll just see how far we get, because there's a lot of instruction, a lot of information here. Let's uh, let's bow our hearts as we begin this study together uh, and just ask God just to really just bless us, encourage us and strengthen us. Okay, Father, we just commit this time to you. Lord, we do, uh, as Lekin has just prayed, Father, ask that your words really land on soil that is prepared. Um, Lord, we want to grow in grace. Lord, we recognize our need for spiritual food. And Lord, as we feast on your word this morning, Lord, give us all the spiritual nutrients and Lord, everything that we need to strengthen us and help us in our walk with you. Uh, Lord, may we grow in grace. Lord, understanding more of your grace, of what that grace really is and how it plays out in our lives. Father, help us to understand your incredible, unconditional love for us. And Lord, this morning as we read these things, may we be blessed, encouraged, but Lord, also challenged that we would be transformed. Lord, as we've seen in your word this morning already, that we should have the mind of Christ. Lord, as we look at these verses that were written some 2,000 years ago, uh, but Lord, are just as applicable this morning for us. We pray that you speak to our hearts directly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. So as we jump into Second uh, Peter, uh, the first thing I want to address is the the challenge regarding the authorship. Now, First Peter uh, is not really attacked by the critics very much in terms of whether Peter wrote it or not. The general uh, consensus is, yes, Peter wrote the first epistle of Peter. But when it comes to the second epistle, there are many commentators and scholars um, throughout the centuries who have tried to question the authenticity of this work and did Peter really write it even people like Martin Luther uh, were skeptical uh, about second Peter now from a critic's point of view I can understand why critics don't like this because it speaks very much about uh, those who would uh, try and undo or rewrite uh, that which God has given us in his word those who would try and um, pervert scripture or deny its authority uh, and its importance so um, to start with I just want to look at uh, just a few things regarding the authenticity of this incredible book now regarding the date of writing I'm just going to read a few things to you. This is just one comment. Uh, the date of composition has proven to be very difficult to determine. This is what uh, one statement says. And reference books have placed two Peter uh, in almost every decade from AD 60 to 160. So, of course, what people are saying is that we don't really know when it was written. If we don't really know when it was written, we're not really sure whether we can say it was Peter's work or whether somebody else wrote it and then used Peter's name uh, or whatever else. So, one comment says, most biblical scholars have concluded Peter is not the author, uh, considering the epistle um, pseudo-digraphical. In other words, somebody else wrote it by using his name. Uh, reasons for this include its linguistic differences from First Peter. 
It's apparent use of Jude. There's some similar quotes that we find in the, the letter that Jude wrote that are used here for the similar sections. And it says possible allusions to second century Gnosticism. So critics have had a, a great day uh, attacking this work and saying that this isn't really, you know, the, the, the book that we're presented in the Bible. It's not really what we think it is. Well, of course, Isaiah fifty nine nineteen. we should always uh, remember that verse. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. If I may paraphrase that, when the devil tries to do his best, God will always find a way of uh, showing how wrong the devil is and that we can really trust his word. When it comes to God's word, we've got to remember that scripture tells us that God has exalted his word above his name. That's an incredible statement, but that's what we're told in Psalms. So, we're also told in Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Just think about that for a second. The word of God that we have, which comprises the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's uh, revelation to us through his word, has been already settled in heaven. This isn't something that was just the work of man, that we've compiled these books and we've made it into something. This already pre-existed. It's just that God used men to record that which he wanted them to record, that we would have a complete revelation and understanding of who God is, of what God's plan is, of what God's purpose is, and of course of the, the promises that God has given us for this incredible eternity that awaits us. And of course, the whole of scripture really unveils God's plan of salvation and redemption through Jesus Christ. But if you think about that statement again, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Uh, may I just put it this way? This is the ultimate in cloud-based storage. For those with computers and using computers, you'll understand that we back up a lot of stuff in the cloud now. We, we store it, uh, not on our computers, but store it elsewhere, online somewhere. Um, so we don't lose the data. Well, you know what? Scripture was there first because everything we have here is already reserved. It's, it's stored, settled in heaven first. Um, so it doesn't matter what man tries to do. Uh, whenever you're going to usurp, it's been said many a time that uh, many a critic's hammer has been broken on the anvil of God's word. So uh, I want you to consider for a second the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, most of you will be familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, just consider what they've kind of told us or what they've um, shown us uh, as we've understood them. So they were discovered between 1947 and 1956 uh, in caves that were in Qumran, which is in southern Israel. So um, just off the, the shore of the Dead Sea down in southern Israel, um, on the, as you look at a map, it would be on the left-hand side. There, there's rocky caves. You can see a picture there uh, of the, the, the terrain, the region. Well, there were some caves there, and uh, there was a, a Bedouin uh, boy that was out throwing stones, as boys are apt to do, and uh, throwing some stones up into these caves that were high up, and, and suddenly heard this kind of shattering of pottery. Um, climbed up there to find out what it was and in these caves there were all sorts of documents and scrolls uh, which were then analysed and understood to be uh, large portions of scripture, of the Tanakh of the Old Testament. That's what's published, that's what we understand. There's some 800 documents that were found in these caves. Now the interesting thing is um, they date from around about 250 BC to about 68 uh, AD. Um, now we know from history that these, uh, this cave was effectively sealed up, that it wasn't touched from the time of about 68 AD, because that's the time that the Romans kind of moved in and, and kind of took over this area. Uh, and so everything that was there couldn't have been placed there beyond that time. So we've got a, a clear date of when these scrolls were placed in the cave at the very latest. 
Now, among the scrolls are partial or complete books uh, of everything in the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Old Testament, uh, or our Old Testament, the Hebrew Tanakh, um, except for the book of Esther. That's the only one that's missing from this list. Um, I want to read a quote from Dr. Bill Cooper. He makes this comment. It says, uh, the caves at Qumran are famous for the hoard of Old Testament and other manuscripts that have been found there. But the thing which receives the least publicity, if any publicity at all, is the fact that the caves have also yielded fragments of New Testament books. This absence of publicity, this blanket denial of their identity, is not to be wondered at. He goes on and says this. It was really most awkward. In fact, it still is very awkward for them. For it means that the fragments must have been written out, copied, from even earlier exemplars, well before AD 68, which undermines everything that the critics have been claiming all these years. The fact of the matter is this, that these manuscripts were deposited in the caves of Qumran by the year AD 68, at the very latest, when Qumran and the surrounding area was overrun by the Roman 10th Legion. And according to the critics, the New Testament, especially the Gospels, had not been written by that time. Now you can see that that's a fragment, uh, which is referred to as uh, 7Q, referring to the cave, uh, cave 7, 7Q10. And it comes from 2 Peter 1.15. Now this was found in cave 7, this fragment of 2 Peter in the cave that was sealed up, that had to have been there from AD 68. Well, if that was in the cave, and this fragment, and through analysis, it could only have come because of the, the combination of letters and so on. I know it looks very small, but uh, there's a real science behind this, um, that this could only have come from that document. It's almost like DNA, in a sense. It's a, it's a very specific fingerprint, uh, the combination of letters and where they, they, they appear on the page and so on. Uh, Bill Cooper goes through this in detail uh, for those who want to study further uh, in two of his books. Firstly, the uh, New Testament fragments among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we uh, That's available from the, the Cambridge Chapel store. Also available from Creation Science Movement. Uh, the other book that's definitely worth a read. Uh, in fact, there's two parts to it. There's the authenticity of the New Testament. Uh, there's part one, which deals with the Gospels and the book of, uh, um, and sorry, just deals with the Gospels. And then the second part, which is Acts, the Epistles and Revelation. And some of the things that come out that Bill Cooper's uncovered uh, are really quite staggering. But he goes on and says this. I'm just quoting from these books. He says, a uh, few things in this good earth can be as delightful for the Bible apologist as the discovery of this fragment, for it contains the most derided document of the entire New Testament. To Peter is universally declared by the critics to be of very late composition and hence to be the most most worthless among the New Testament documents. That's what the, the non-Christian critics, those who would love to tear the Bible apart, that's typically what they say. Uh, Bill Cooper carries on though says it is not hard to see why they condemn it uh, sorry why they condemn it so ferociously uh, for Second Peter provides the perfect and most damning portrait of the modern Bible critic that is to be found anywhere in the world if I were a Bible critic I would have condemned it too it makes us very it makes very uncomfortable reading for them that uh, and, and that discomfort is magnified a hundredfold by the fact of its discovery in Cave 7. For that shows irrefutably that 2 Peter was written well within the eyewitness period and its apostolic authorship is therefore assured. So we have 
evidence, documented, reliable evidence now to show that Second Peter was written before AD 68, which means it was in circulation by that time, because this wouldn't have been, of course, the only copy. So this was a copy of the original. So it was already being circulated by that time which means that the people alive at that particular period of history would have been very well aware of these things. And the statements and the claims that Peter makes could easily have been refuted, if not true. And of course, we have so many things. We'll go through some of the things that Peter alludes to and Peter mentions. But let me just go on to probably a more pertinent question for us. So we, we've got the evidence. We've got the facts. We've, that, that's all done, dusted, proven. The critics can say what they want. They're, they're, they're now uh, facing this, this brick wall of evidence that they can't get past. So, But the question for us is, what does this matter? You know, why does it matter? Why, why is it important? Well, firstly, it tells us that Second Peter, and obviously therefore First Peter, was actually written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. As an interesting aside, Bill Cooper makes the point, uh, and looking at his uh, his research and the work that he's done, uh, I, I'm absolutely on board, and I think it, it's really kind of proven now, that all of the New Testament was written before the destruction of the temple. Now, even myself, I've taught through the book of Revelation, and when I taught it some years ago as a fellowship, I said what most commentators and scholars will tell you, that uh, Revelation was written round about 98 AD, at the end of the first century. And there's some reasons why commentators have gone down that road and that's why they've assumed that date. Um, it turns out that that's not correct. The, the book of Revelation and all of the New Testament books were written before AD 70. Now, this is within 38 years of the resurrection. So everything was written in a very, very short time period and circulated and copied and so on. So um, this is a really quite interesting thing to, uh, to understand. So that's the first thing. It's also, again, that Second Peter was written after John had received the revelation. And there's a few things. If you want to read Bill Cooper's work, you'll understand why uh, we can make that conclusion. Uh, that Peter makes allusions to things that John had already highlighted when he wrote Revelation. So, And it's written during a time when things were normal. So this was really before much of the persecution of the Christians had begun. So whilst no doubt Peter was aware of uh, some of the antagonism towards Christians by Rome, most of the antagonism that existed in Peter's day was actually from the Jews rather than from the Romans. That changes things a little bit in our perception because it means that Peter was writing in a very ordinary time as far as they were concerned. You know, uh, yes, obviously it was it was the birth of, of the church of Christianity. It was uh, an incredible period of history. And yet... It wasn't all that much different than the world that we know that we typically live our lives in today. There would have been all the, the challenges, all the excesses that the world is prone to, to go after. There would have been the persecution typically that we see today. Uh, and yet there was also that, in a sense, stability, that normality. You know, of course, once it got past AD 70 and the destruction of the temple and, and Jerusalem and so on by the Romans, the, the, the landscape changed dramatically uh, for the Christian church at that point. My point in saying that is uh, that this really becomes a very practical instruction manual and a checklist for each of us. So don't go thinking that Peter's writing this from a position that, you know, we, we can't understand or he, he, he was in a position that it was very different then. Because that's often how we, we tend to try and uh, compartmentalize things. We tend to think, well, it was very different in, in David's day or in Isaiah's day or in Peter's day. The more you study, the more you realize, actually, the world then is very similar to the world now. We make the same mistakes now that we made then. 
there's the same problems that we face now uh, that were faced then by those individuals. So I say that because I want to just, again, get our heads around the fact that this really is a very applicable and timely lesson for us to be going through in the world that we're living now. So with that, let's jump into Second uh, Peter. Uh, we're going to see if we can make it through the first 18 verses in a moment. I just want to give you just a few background things about the, the book or what we're going to be looking at. Really, it's broken down into five areas. I mean, you could probably break it down into more if you wanted to be uh, a little bit granular with it. But certainly it starts by speaking about Christian virtue, how we should live our lives, you know, how there should be this change. Again, our verse of the week speaking about being uh, of the same mind as Christ. You know, so important that we understand how we should be thinking, how we should be living. So we'll look at that and those things in a moment. We're then going to get on to Peter's testimony and faith. Why did Peter believe? Why was Peter so keen to um, be a an ambassador for Jesus Christ, to, to be a witness uh, and to tell people of all that he'd seen? Well, we're going to look at some of the things that Peter tells us as to what stirred his heart, how he knew that this wasn't just something that had been made up. Then Peter's going to spend the majority of these short few chapters, uh, three chapters in Second Peter, warning against false teachers, false teachers, and those who would criticize uh, Scripture, those who would deny that Jesus would be coming back, those that would challenge that which the Bible says. We live in a world that is full of critics, full of people that love to condemn and criticize the Bible. Well, Peter really gives us some very good arguments that we could throw back at those individuals. And then Peter's going to go on to talk about the day of the Lord. Now, this is the period of time that the Bible speaks much. In fact, there's for every prophecy of Jesus's first coming, there's been calculated that there's eight prophecies of Jesus's second coming. And this is, of course, the, the period of time that we're about to go into. We're, we're kind of in it already. I mean, really, the day of the Lord starts from the time of Pentecost, uh, according to Peter. And we're in that time now. Uh, Peter makes that um, connection uh, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Um, so we, we have all this this period of time and all that's ahead of us, the things that Jesus warned were going to happen, the earthquakes, the famines, the wars, the pestilences, all these things. I mean, we're right in the middle of a, a, a big pestilence, aren't we? This pandemic that's, that's just shaking the world. Well, are not these the things that Jesus said we should expect to see? And these are just, again, the beginning of sorrows. These are just the birth pangs. Um, these are the things that we're going to uh, see build and gain uh, intensity. You know, and, and there's so many things that are coming about through even this pandemic. The idea we've said already about cancelling of cash, the idea of track and trace, which seems such a great idea. I mean, of course, there's the questions about getting it right and that. But that aside, you know, if they could come up with a system whereby you you could maybe have a, well, let's phrase it, for example, uh, a chip or something that could be implanted under the skin that would track and trace you wherever you go then you'd know who you've been in contact with and you'd know if you're safe and it could be sold in such a great way but then we could also make that thing used for buying and selling so you could only purchase something if you've got this chip and guess what we were a couple of steps away from the system of the mark of the beast being introduced now whether it will be that way or not i don't know i'm not saying it will be there's some interesting uh, studies and uh, uh, commentators and so on that have talked about uh, how the Mark of the Beast system will play out. There's this system that Revelation 13 talks about, uh, a system for buying and selling. Unless you have this mark, you can't buy and sell. All sorts of things. But 
we are so close. The, 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 the technology, the potential for this is right in front of us. Um, and never before have we been in a situation where the world will be so willing to say, yeah, we'll take it. And this is how it will be presented. It will be strong delusion, we're told, um, in uh, Second Thessalonians, that people are going to believe a lie. So we need to be very discerning in these days as well. And Peter's going to address this day of the Lord. And then the, the conclusion of the book really is, OK, so given all of this, so what? How should we live our lives? And Peter's going to just conclude this this little study, uh, these three chapters, with a real clear uh, summary of what our lives should be like, given these things. <clears throat> just a, a quote from one commentator. He said this, um, um, convinced that the best antidote for heresy is a mature knowledge of the truth. Peter exhorts his readers to have a proper appreciation for prophecy, to live holy and godly lives while awaiting Christ's coming and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. That's a great summary of what Peter's trying to do uh, in this short uh, epistle, this, this short letter. Again, convinced that the best antidote for heresy is a mature knowledge of the truth. Peter exhorts his readers to have a proper appreciation for prophecy and to live holy in godly lives as we're waiting Christ's coming and to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. You know, that really is, uh, as I say, a great summary because Peter will speak about this knowledge and the understanding uh, a number of times. In fact, seven times in the first chapter of this epistle, Peter speaks of knowledge. You know, Christians are not to be or should not be ignorant in fact peter uh, along with paul really hammers this point paul a number of times says brethren I, I you know i don't want you to be ignorant about these things christians should not be lacking in understanding and the things that peter's going to highlight the things we should know and should understand of, of course god and his nature and his character now if we do understand god his nature and his character when things don't go the way we'd anticipated then our default position should be, well, it's okay because I'm trusting God and God's in control. Rather than, God, why did you allow this to happen? God, why did you allow that? God, why would you do such a thing? Of course, if we understand that God is in control, if we understand that God is good, that God is love, if we understand these things, understand his character, it changes the way we live our lives. Again, it's being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Another thing that we shouldn't be ignorant of is God's plan of salvation through Jesus. And I think most of us are comfortable with that. But we need to be very clear in our own hearts and minds that salvation is not by any other means or through any other means other than Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. Peter's going to make the point as well that we shouldn't be ignorant of how to live a godly life. It's, it's surprising when you speak to Christians, and I'm sure you've, you've had this opportunity over the years yourselves, that you speak to other believers and they almost seem confused as about how should I live as a Christian? Well, actually, the Bible's really clear in the instructions it gives us. Paul, uh, Peter, sorry, Paul speaks about the liberty that we have in Christ in Galatians, but that we shouldn't use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And we should understand this. We should understand how these things apply to us and how we should be living our lives, particularly in the light of what's coming. 
But Peter will also give us that kind of why we should live a godly life. And a Christian shouldn't be ignorant of this. We should know why we should live a godly life. Why does it matter? What are the implications if we don't live a godly life? We should be very uh, clear and clued up on these things. We should also not be ignorant of the fact that our lives should produce fruit. We've been called by Jesus Christ to be his disciples. Talked about this before, this incredible privilege that we have. Uh, a Jewish uh, child, as they're growing for the first uh, five years of their lives, they would get some sort of education. They'd be taught to read and write, typically by using the Torah. Uh, in fact, Psalm 119 was a key part of their learning that they would uh, they'd learn their alphabet by learning the Torah alphabet. Again, a Jewish term, Aleph and Bet, um, so on. So, uh, you know, and the Jewish children would learn to read and write. Uh, and then those that were gifted would go on to the next stage, the next level. Um, but then after that, typically by the age of about 12, they begin their formal education, their formal uh, careers, their education typically was done. But for the gifted ones, they would go on and they'd be taken under the wing of a rabbi. Uh, they would become a Talmudim, a disciple of that rabbi, and they would learn to become like their rabbi. And it was only the, the, the top one percent, as it were, the, the best and the most gifted students who would get that opportunity. Well, for the likes of Peter, who's writing this and the other disciples, they'd gone, they'd got their jobs. They kind of uh, not so much flunked school, as it were, but, you know, they moved into their careers. They're into their lives. And then suddenly a rabbi comes along and says, I'm going to give you the opportunity that you never had before. I'm going to give you the opportunity to come and be my disciple and I will teach you to become like me. And that's effectively what the disciples, the apostles did. That's what we're called to do, to become like our rabbi. And of course, our rabbi has called us, we're told in John's gospel, but we've been called that we might produce fruit. So this is what the Lord wants to see in us, this this life that bears fruit. We shouldn't just hide the things that God gives us um, because we looked at the, the parable that Jesus gives the individual that buries uh, that which you've been given in the ground um, for fear of having to give back more. No, no, we should be like those that were given five talents and multiply and end up with 10 talents and so on. That God will give us uh, the gifts, the abilities, the talents, all the things he does. But our lives should produce fruit and that fruit should be fragrant to the Lord. It should be pleasing to him. We shouldn't also be ignorant of the fact that we have eternal rewards awaiting us. Now, we've talked quite a bit about this in recent studies. The fact that there are a number of rewards, specifically crowns, we've talked about the other things as well, uh, and they await us as believers. Uh, but there is also this uh, danger that we can forfeit or lose those rewards. Now, that's nothing to do with our salvation. That is assured, and that's not based upon our works. That's based upon the blood of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing you can do to undo that. But the, the good works that we do as believers will accumulate rewards in heaven, that treasure in heaven that we're told to lay up in Matthew's gospel. Well, we shouldn't be ignorant of those things, but we also shouldn't be ignorant of the short time that we have to fulfill the ministries that we've been given. You know, it's quite a sobering study uh, or, or exercise, should I say, to just work out how many weekends you have left. You know, typically our weeks get consumed with our routine and so on. But if you just sit down and work out how many weekends, you only get, um, uh, you know, your uh, 52 weeks in a year. So we have 52 weekends a year. You add up the number of weekends you've got between now and then whatever you think, uh, however long you think you might live. Okay, just put a number on that and work out how many weekends you've got. You'll be surprised how few we have. 
And you start to realize how short. And this is why David speaks about uh, asking the Lord to teach us to number our days. And, and David says again that our, day, our days are just like a vapor. Solomon makes the same kind of comments. That, uh, you know, that this life is just passing. And the last thing we want to do is step into eternity and suddenly look back and think, I've missed all these opportunities that I could have been using for the Lord. So Peter will speak of his own life in this context, but as a challenge that goes out to us in the same way. Another thing is the certainty of our faith and the solid basis we have for believing. Now, if we get there in a moment, I want to just take you through some of those things. Um, we, we, we could spend weeks uh, going through the evidence and the proof that we have for the belief that we hold. It's not a blind leap in the dark. And then the other thing, of course, is the importance and the purpose of prophecy. Now, Peter's going to make this very, very clear. We won't get onto that this morning, um, but it's a really important part of this message that we'll spend some time on, looking at prophecy. What is prophecy? And how is it to be helpful to us? Why does Peter speak of it as being better than seeing something with your own eyes? Uh, he speaks of it better than a physical experience to understand prophecy. And we'll look at the details behind that. Just want to start as we move into the text by jumping forward into chapter three, because there's a, a verse at the beginning of chapter three that kind of really sums up what Peter was trying to communicate. And it says this, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both. So the first one and this one, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Okay, this again, this idea of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Peter's saying, I want you to think. But, and I want you to think by remembering. Consider and think about all that you have learned, all that you know, all that you've already seen. And this should impact and change our lives. And Peter writes, as he'd done in the first epistle, with the express intent of stirring up pure minds. The word render pure here uh, in the Greek occurs uh, only here and in uh, Philippians 1.10 where it's rendered sincere. That's the idea, a pure mind or sincere mind. Uh, and uh, Albert Barnes in his commentary says this, the word properly refers to that which may be judged of in sunshine. You know what it's like, you know, when the sun comes out and shines, you see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. Yesterday, as we were driving back into uh, to Haven, we were coming over Portsdown Hill and we're up at the top. As you kind of come towards Haven, you look and you see obviously all Haven lies in this kind of real uh, valley almost. Um, but you could see things as the sun was shining. Uh, I, and I saw things on the landscape and the horizon I've not seen before. Uh, there was a church way off over the back somewhere. I'm not sure where it is. I might even go and try and find it. Was because you see the spire standing up, um, you know, and you see things that that the sunlight reveals that otherwise you wouldn't have seen. That's what um, Peter's really alluding to. That's what Albert Barnes is, is highlighting here. That uh, our pure minds should be minds that are free of the clutter, so that we can see clearly. That's the, that's the kind of the idea. Again, the minds that have been transformed that now think spiritually and not carnally. You know, the carnal things, the things of this world just tend to add fog and cloud to our horizon. They help that they, 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 they cause confusion rather than bring clarity. And so we're to be transformed by getting rid of those things so that we think spiritually and start to understand things as they are. Again, it's minds that receive the things of the spirit of God. That's the idea. Again, it's by way of remembrance. And really what Peter's saying is, you know, stop, if you like, down tools. Just think about this. I want you to remember. Spurgeon made this comment. He said, the purest minds need stirring up at all times. 
It would be a great pity to stir up impure minds. That would only be to do mischief. But pure minds may be stirred as much as you please, and the more, the better. Okay, let's jump into the text then. And we read Simon Peter. Now, before we go on, I just want to comment Simon Peter using both names that he'd been given. First of all, Simon, that was his earthly name and really that earthly character. Um, we, we've seen already the, the nature of Peter. We spent a lot of time in our opening study in uh, First Peter. Uh, if you want to go and review that, talking about the, the individual himself. Uh, but then Jesus gives him a new name. Um, Petros, basically Peter, uh, and he was called to be a new man, a new creation in Christ, which he becomes. But it's interesting as he writes this, effectively he's saying, even in just that opening statement of his name, there's the old man and there's the new life. Uh, and this is the challenge that we all face. You know, Peter was under no illusion that he'd now made it. He was now a perfect Christian, that the old has gone and everything now is wonderful. Of course, spiritually, and as far as God is concerned, when God looks at us, we are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come, we've become new creations. And yet we still struggle with this sin nature, with the the, the carnal nature. Peter makes no uh, pretense about what his life was like. And he's not saying he's perfect or he's been perfected yet, but he knows that the Lord is doing that work in him. He then goes on. In fact, actually, sorry, before I read that, I just want to read this comment by uh, Adam Clark. He says this, uh, like uh, precious faith, we're going to see this in a second, speaks to the fact that the Jews and Gentiles enjoyed the same faith and therefore the same benefits in Jesus. God having given to you believing Gentiles the same faith and salvation which he's given to us believing Jews. Now, this is what Peter's going to build on. We'll look at these words in a second. Uh, he tells us, too, that uh, faith is precious. Now, this is the word that Peter's used a number of times. Uh, you know, And uh, this is Spurgeon's quote. He says, he tells us, too, that faith is precious. And is it not precious? For it deals with precious things, with precious promises, with precious blood, with a precious redemption, with all the preciousness of the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me read this opening statement again. Simon Peter a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith. With us, speaking of the apostles, the disciples, through the righteousness of God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. This is the statement that Peter makes. So again, he understands the challenges we face, but he speaks of what we have collectively that we can encourage each other with, that we have obtained, not because of our works, but because of his goodness, of Christ's goodness, this like precious faith. Now, the other thing I just want to pull out of this opening uh, statement is that Peter refers to himself here as a bond servant. In the Greek, it's the word doulos. Now, we need to jump back to the Old Testament to understand this because typically in the Old Testament, we find that a slave um, now could be a number of reasons why an individual was in that position. Uh, and this is not uh, to be looked at in a negative sense. Think of it more as an employee, somebody who would serve and work for a master. But this is what, what is presented in the Old Testament. They were to serve typically for six years, but in the seventh year they were free to go. We read in Deuteronomy 15, 16 and 17, And it shall be, if he say unto thee, then this is the servant speaking to the master of the house, I will not go uh, away from thee, because he loveth thee and thine house, because he is well with thee. In other words, servant has the option of saying, you know what, actually, I like my life here, I enjoy working for you. 
everything's provided for me. Then verse 17 says, Then thou shalt take an awl and thrust it through his ear unto the door. And he shall be thy servant forever. Literally, what they were doing, there, there was a um, uh, uh, figurative part of this where they were literally joining this individual to the house. Uh, you were piercing their ear. Uh, and forever from that point, they would wear an earring as a sign that they had chosen to become a servant. Now, the a doulos, a bond servant, was considered uh, of higher rank than a regular servant because they'd willingly said, I want to serve you. I want to stay here and serve you in this way. And I will forever be joined to this house. Again, that word doulos means bond slave. And Paul uses that idea a number of times in his writings uh, to speak of his service to Christ, saying, you know, I was free to go. I'd served my time. The debt had been paid and I was free to go, but I want to stay and serve my master. Now, that really is the situation for all of us. You know, that we have been delivered. We've been set free. Our sin is paid for. We're free to go. And yet, what is the appropriate response? Well, the appropriate response is we say, I'm free to go, but I choose to stay. That's the liberty that we have in Christ. We are free to go, but we choose to stay and serve Jesus, to be joined to the house in a sense, to be part of the church, part of that which he's doing so that he's glorified because we recognize that our freedom was bought for by his blood. Now, Peter also says here, not only a bond servant, but an apostle. So he willingly had chosen to serve. But this idea of apostleship, as I said already, was a calling. It was one that he was one that had been called specifically by Jesus to this work. And this idea of being an apostle, we'll talk in a second, but means a sent one. And this is what the apostles were. They'd been sent of Jesus Christ. Now, specifically, the apostles were ones who knew that they would lay down their lives. They walked with Jesus. This is the idea today in our culture sometimes gets a little bit um, confused. We have churches where they'll talk of having apostles uh, within the church today. You know, and rather than talking about a pastor, they talk about, you know, apostle so-and-so. It's really not a, a good biblical use of the term, uh, if we're to be consistent with the way the Bible uses this. Uh, the apostles were those who had been with and walked with Jesus during his ministry. Those that had been called by him, that had literally seen Jesus and so on. Now, Paul, of course, is an apostle, but he's one who he says himself was called out of due time. So he didn't get to walk with Jesus and see Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry in the same way the other apostles did. But of course, afterward, Paul did see Jesus, of course, uh, on the road to Damascus. Uh, He sees him. And so he becomes, in that sense, an apostle also. Um, So Peter now speaking of the fact that he's a servant, but also his authority, he's stating here, that he's absolutely entitled and the right person to be giving this message to us because he's got the credentials to do this. And he says, you know, doesn't doesn't try and lord it over. Uh, He's already spoken about the way that uh, we should be uh, all under the chief shepherd, not lording over and so on. But to obtain like precious faith, uh, we're all in this together, growing together. Uh, Peter really was qualified to write this. And I said already this this like precious faith. And Peter's going to build on this foundation in um, Hebrews 11, 6. It says there that without faith, it's impossible to please God, to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's the reward of them that diligently seek him. This faith we have is so precious and we have to have this faith and confidence and belief in God. 
It is, in a sense, the starting point. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. If we're to grow, it's through faith that he will do that work of sanctification. If we're to witness to others, it's through the faith that we have, the certainty that we have in the things that God has revealed to us. And of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. I just want to read this one. Um, one of the um, Jewish um, sco- uh, commentators, scholars, uh, great Greek scholar as well, makes this comment. He says, uh, this expression, God and our Saviour, is in a construction in the Greek text, which demands that we translate our God and Saviour. Jesus Christ the expression thus showing that Jesus Christ is the Christian's God. So although it says in our translation, God and our Savior, it almost implies as we look at that, we have two characters, God the Father and in Jesus the Son. And of course that's true, but really the context is saying that it is God our Savior Jesus. That Jesus is God. This is a great statement. Uh, the JWs and others wouldn't like this, but this is how the Greek text is uh, uh, is written according to those that, that know better. Right, let's go on. The second verse says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. These are like the Siamese twins of the New Testament, grace and peace. Grace always comes before peace. When we know God's grace, then his peace will follow. And Peter was saying effectively, look, I'm praying that you have an abundance of God's grace and peace. It's lovely, the statement, grace and peace. What Peter's saying is, I'm praying that you would know God's grace and peace and that they be multiplied unto you. We need it. And we need to pray this for each other. And notice also uh, this use of knowledge. And unto you in the knowledge we have to know about God and about Jesus. How does that come to us? Well, it's again, it's through the knowledge of God and Jesus that we're going to understand and be recipients of that grace and that peace. Literally, it's through his word. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Now, Peter's going to build on this. Okay, so speaking of this divine power, that he's given us in all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then he says again, this is another use of knowledge, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. God has called us to these things. And we are to understand it. We're to understand this divine power, understand all things that he has given us. So there's a lot of, um, as I said at the beginning, it's a little bit like a checklist here that Peter's giving us. So these are the things you should know, that you should understand. And then we get onto this great statement, whereby, so this, this knowledge that we have, this knowledge of God and his plan of his grace and so on, uh, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now we'll come back to this in a minute, that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let me just paraphrase this. There is, of course, the temptation to lust after worldly things. But if we understand the promises that God has given us, we won't crave after those things. Let me give you a very um, simple and probably crude analogy in a sense. But, you know, you might be hungry during the afternoon and you might want to go and snack on something. But if you know you're going out for a lovely meal in the evening you're restrained from having something because you know something that is coming, that all that which is coming is going to be better. OK, 
Okay, poor example, possibly. But because you know that what you've got, the promise of what's coming is better than the little thing you may have now, then you can easily put aside the thing that you are maybe tempted by at that particular moment. That's, in a sense, the idea that's being conveyed here, that the world will try and tempt us with all sorts of things. But if we understand these promises and what God is offering and giving to us, Actually, it helps us that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. We start to think like God thinks. We start to understand things from his perspective. We are joined to him, partakers. Uh, and the same thing, that idea of partaking, you know, uh, typically with the, the Anglican communion service, they have that phrase, you know, that we are partakers of one bread. They use that kind of terminology. We have the same understanding that when we share communion, we are we are part of one body. And this is what we're being told here. Now, we can't just jump forward before uh, looking a little bit about these promises. So, again, the promises of God are a safeguard against sin. Remember what we're told in Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. If you're struggling with sin, read the Bible. Read the Bible continually. Let it permeate your thinking. Let it permeate every part of your life. And when you are tempted, guarantee you the Holy Spirit will bring a scripture back to your memory that you've read. Something that will just give you that uh, confidence to say, no, I will reject the world, whatever it is that's being uh, presented to me, and I will follow the Lord. Because I know what I have in him is greater and is better it's very much as we sing in that great hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And they do. When we're looking at Jesus, when we're looking at his face, and when we look into God's word, we're looking into the face of the Lord, then we start to come to that place where we don't crave the things of the world. Okay, let's spend a little bit of time just to, to close off this morning, just talking about the promises of God. This is just one list. This is not a, a definitive list by any means, but I just, just throw some ideas out just to get you thinking here. Because Peter's speaking about we should know. So let's start thinking. Okay. Just firstly, one of the promises that we have repeatedly echoed in scripture is that God is always with me. What a, what a wonderful thought that is. There was the story of a little boy that once said to his dad, dad, does God watch everything I do? And his dad turned around and said, God, uh, son, God loves you so much. He can't take his eyes off you. And that's the way we should think about it. Yesterday, we went uh, swimming um, with the family. And uh, I was looking after Shreya for a lot of the time, uh, partly because I just love being able to do that. And I was watching her every second, uh, you know, and it was such a lovely experience. But because I love her so much, I just wanted to keep watching her. What do what she was doing, making sure she was safe and protecting her and so on. You know, again, poor analogies from our perspective. But, but God watches us like that because he loves us so much and he won't let us go. And because of that, we can say, I will not fear. The second uh, on this list, uh, God is always in control. We mentioned this earlier. We need to trust that God really is in complete control. And therefore, we should not doubt. As I said earlier on, you know, often we do doubt. But actually, when we come to appreciate and understand the promises of God, and this isn't, this isn't just the odd few promises. The Bible is full of these things. God is always in control. You know, and you can look at many accounts in Scripture. You take the life of Abraham. What is a great lesson in that? The life of Joseph. You know, things went what would seem to us to be horribly wrong. He's taken away from his family. He's put in prison. Uh, all for things that he's not done wrong. 
but God had a wonderful plan and purpose. And you see how God used that situation and ultimately how he used Joseph, because Joseph never gave up trusting in God. We need not doubt. Second one, oh sorry, third one, uh, God is always good. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 68, it should be in your memories by now. God is good and does good. God is always good. That's God's character. It's God's nature. God can't do something that is not good. And therefore, I'll not despair. Even though things happen that I don't understand, well, the problem with that is my understanding, not God. So I just need to learn to trust, and therefore, I won't despair. God is always watching as well. God doesn't miss things. God sees what other people do or say to us. God sees when people are are cruel, unkind, or when we're persecuted, or where unjust things happen. God sees all of that. And so we'll not falter, we'll not give up this faith, this walk that we are walking with the Lord. The fifth one, God is always victorious. You know, God never fails and therefore I will not fail if I walk with him and trust him. Just five simple things. The Bible promises about God's goodness, these things. When things get tough, it can be very easy to focus on ourselves or our difficulties. But just look at some of these promises about who God is and let them lift your eyes away from your own situation uh, to the God who is indefinitely good. Now, there's a, there's a bunch of scriptures here and I'm going to go through them very quickly. But if you want to take a copy of this, read, uh, read them again to yourself time after time or make your own list, I encourage you to think about doing that. Psalm 145 verse 9. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. 1 Chronicles 16.34. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Psalm 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Notice that that the, the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting. Some we have some songs that where we have you know that God's love you know go, carries on forever and you know and it does God's love does but it's His mercy that you want to be grateful of that is everlasting that God will never get to a point in eternity where He'll say right I've had enough you know you 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 let me down that that won't ever happen God's mercy is everlasting James one seventeen every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, no changeableness with God, neither shadow of turning. 2 Samuel 7.28 And now, O Lord God, thou art, art, art that God, and thy works be true. And thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Specific promise to an individual, and yet, of course, also to David in this context in 2 Samuel 7. But also applies to us, because God is without partiality. So it's the same yesterday, today, forever. He doesn't change. And God has no favorite. So this promise made to David can equally be applied to us if we're walking with him. That uh, now, O Lord uh, God, Thou art that God, and Thy words be true. And Thou hast promised this goodness unto His servant. This is the promise of God. Some more, Psalm nineteen seven: The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And notice this: making wise the simple. You may think you struggle. You may think you don't understand. Well, read Scripture. God will help you to grow and to learn and to um, uh, to understand things that maybe once were confusing to you. You know, Psalm 119 tells us that through his word, he's made us wiser than our teachers. I could give you some examples of that that have just been incredible in my own life. But Psalm 134 verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. You know, th- some of these promises, there is a condition. We have to trust him. Okay, 
but then we'll promise that this blessing will be there if we do. And taste and see. Try it. Try God. God will never fail or let you down or disappoint. In the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7, uh, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them that trust in him. You know, you don't have to go to God and try and introduce yourself and explain who you are because he may not know you very well. No, God knows you. God, God has this relationship with you through his son. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a son and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I'll read that again. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And then there's promises about God being with us. You know, we need to hold on to these promises in the individual situations we face. And of course, think about Noah. Think about the rainbow. There was a beautiful rainbow the other day as I looked out the window at work. And it just reminded me again that God is faithful in those promises he gives. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never let us down. Isaiah 40, 29. He gives power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Isaiah forty thirty one, But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Now again, promises to Israel. But the Lord will also honor these things to the church, to us, as we walk with him. Because again, God is without partiality. Jeremiah 29, 11, another specific promise that was given to Israel. But you see the character of God in this. God says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Now, I know it may be just semantics. Some of the modern translations translate this to give you a future and a hope. And I kind of understand that. But a future and a hope to me just sounds a little bit, you know, a bit wishy-washy. It's like, yeah, well, we can look forward to something. It's a future and hope. But the actual, I like the way the King James translates this. I think it's far more specific that God has promised, promised you an expected end. It's guaranteed. It's secure. It's assured of that we don't need to worry. It's something that is a definitive final point that God is taking us to, not just a wishful thinking thing. This is a confidence that we can have in the Lord. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8, uh, And the Lord, he it is that does go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. What a great verse. Now, again, specific to Israel, but God will do these things for us too. This is God's character. Joshua 1, nine. Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, not, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be careful or be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Go to God. Give him your requests. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding. You know, a situation may not make sense to us, but we go, we take it to the Lord, we pray, and a peace will come in that is beyond natural understanding, and it shall keep your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. There's promises as well of uh, concerning provision that God will meet our needs. He's able to exceedingly abundantly provide and supply all that we need. Matthew six thirty one to thirty three. We read this. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. 
For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Proverbs 5, sorry, 3 verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And then the promises. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. It's a promise from God that he will direct your paths. You don't need to worry about which route you're taking through life, where you're going to go, how things are going to work out. Trust in the Lord. He will direct your paths. My life has been a testimony to seeing God direct my paths in ways that I had never planned or anticipated. Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Or what man is there of you of whom if his son asked bread would give him a stone or if he asked a fish would give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, this is the promise. How much more shall your father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 9 eight, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may be may abound to every good work. God has promised us to give us all that we need, all sufficiency, not all that we want, but all that we need, God will provide. Psalm 34.10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Romans 8.32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I mean, what a, a context, what a statement that, that God didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up. Well, given what he's already done, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All that we need, God will provide. And then some promises that Jesus makes for us. You know, during his earthly ministry, Jesus made a number of promises uh, about the peace and the hope that are found only in him. And these promises of Jesus should give us really great hope that he truly is the saviour of the world. Firstly, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Promise. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And this is the promise. And you shall find rest unto your souls. If you're struggling with rest, go to the Lord. He's promised to give you rest for your souls. And he says, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. John fourteen six. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. But there's a promise in that statement that through Jesus we can come to the Father. John eight twelve. Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. And here's the promise. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek and has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. This is what we have. This promise here is that God sent Jesus, God the Father sent Jesus to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. These are great promises that we hold on to. John 14, 15 and 16. If you love me, keep my commandments. And notice what Jesus says, a promise. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, comforter that he may abide with you forever. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes but to uh, for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. Uh, John 11.25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. These are promises that Jesus gives that are beyond anything anyone in the world is able to offer or ever has offered. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. What a promise. That we abide in him will bring forth that fruit that Peter's going to be talking about as we carry on in this study. Matthew twenty eight twenty. 
I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Great promise. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then John 14, 1 to 3. Great promise. I love this verse. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. To where I am, there you may be also and there's loads more promises i'm going to leave these in the notes they'll be up online later on so please go through look at some of these scriptures that are there for the sake of time i'm not going to read all of those but there's lots of promises that god gives us about answering prayer and these uh, just should give us a confidence that we can go to god whenever we have uh, an occasion wherever we have a need and of course there's promises about our salvation about the assurance and the security that we have in jesus christ when we put our faith and trust in him I just want to give you some of these uh, things. It's just in closing now. So eight promises. This is just kind of from what we've been going through in our recent studies, things that really uh, just come out really clearly to me. Number one from John 10. We've seen this by James echoed these ideas and Peter as well, that through faith in Jesus, your eternal salvation is assured. That is a promise that we have. The second one, again, a go-to verse, Colossians 2, 13 to 14, is that your sins are forgiven and wiped clean because of the cross. Back in our study in Hebrews, the third one, uh, that our conscience is also cleansed. It's not just that our sin is forgiven, but our conscience is cleansed, and that sets us free. Romans eight fifteen and 17, we've talked a lot about this recently in our studies, that we are now adopted and part of God's family. The fifth one, you've been given the place and the position of the firstborn, 1 John 3, 1. As a go-to verse for that. In 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 1 verse 4, we, we saw there that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, awaiting us. And then the seventh one, you've been chosen by God and be, to be used by him to produce good fruit, as we've already alluded to already. These are promises, though, that God has given us and the work that he's going to do. And the, the last one in 2 Timothy 2.13, that God is faithful, even if at times we are unfaithful. He that has begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. And again, just want to finish this verse, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know, we can find complete contentment in Christ. No longer do we need to crave the things of the world. That's the lust. You know, we crave the things of the world because they think they will satisfy a longing or a need. But when we hold on to and understand the promises we've been given, we can find great peace and a release from the bondage of sin. Again, and that idea of sin really is having any other God before him. Anything that in our life that is in place of God, that we go to instead of going to God, that really is is where that that problem of sin sits. Okay, uh, let's leave it there for this morning, uh, and we can build on it next week. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning, Lord. Thank you for reminding us of these promises. Oh, Father, help us to really hold on to these things and and just be so aware of how many promises you have given us. Lord, as Peter says, uh, they're exceedingly great and precious. Lord, not just great in terms of incredible and overwhelming, but great in terms of the number of them as well. The Lord, you've made it so clear that we shouldn't worry, that we shouldn't be anxious, that we should trust you, that we should allow you to direct our paths. So, Father, just, just impress these things upon our hearts and minds, we pray. Lord, help us to be knowing, understanding. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name.
Amen.